Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 26. Hear now the reading of God's word. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it and that we would know from it the glorious reality of your son, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, 
who has come to deliver us, and that we would know him rightly and as such worship him in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and most of all, that we would know you and love you and serve you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. In this fallen and sinful world, we will find many old grudges. Though as Christians, we are to be forgiving and to not hold grudges. Old grudges do exist. Sometimes they even involve us, either as the one holding or the one holding against. I like music, and I often think it is fascinating to hear the stories of bands, groups of musicians, and why they break up and why they stay broken up. A personality clash over something rather silly often turns into people who used to be successful and talented and making good music together. They hate each other and don't speak to each other for decades. But some old grudges are even deeper and longer than the life of or, or the actions of one or a few people. There are old grudges that shape nations, that shape policy and politics, that have massive consequences on the world. Even today, we see, for instance, the teaching of critical race theory, which attempts to hold old grudges over things like slavery, even though slavery ended in America over 150 years ago. We see in many wars, like the current war between Russia and the Ukraine, it didn't come out of nowhere. There's been quite a history of bad blood between the two nations that has built up for some time. Now, as I said, Christians are not to be holders of grudges. We are to be forgiving. And as far as the broader geopolitical grudges I mentioned, all of these proceed in some way from sin. They're a result of, of wrongdoing, of conflict, of strife that is left unconfessed and unreconciled. Well, tonight as we continue in John, we will see Jesus come into contact with one of the more significant and important old grudges of his time, part of the world that he lived in. But Jesus is not interested in carrying forward the grudges of people and nations past. He has come to reconcile all things to himself. This includes groups and peoples that often need to be reconciled to each other. Now, a lot is made in our day of reconciliation between different groups, a lot of talk about how groups oppressed other groups in the past and thus much must take steps, essentially pay penance for reconciliation to occur. But this is not biblical or Christian reconciliation. It's usually just a cover for some other sort of agenda. True reconciliation of old grudges between peoples only comes in Christ, in the uniting of different peoples into one people through the gospel. And so we will look at Jesus coming into confrontation with an old grudge tonight in three points. First, we see the division in verses 1 through 9. What is this conflict? What is this old grudge? This thing that began well before his arrival. And then second, we see a discussion in verses 10 through 15. In a conversation between Jesus and an unnamed woman, we see Jesus re reveal some important things about himself and his work. 
And then third, we see disclosures in verses 16 through 26. We actually see two sets of disclosures, one concerning the woman and another concerning Jesus. So again, we have division, discussion, and disclosures. So first, we will look at a division in verses 1 through 9. We see that after the events we looked at previously, Jesus and his disciples embark on a journey. Before this, they were baptizing in Judea, in proximity to where John the Baptist and his disciples had also been baptizing. But this, once again, draws the attention of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees felt the need to police these new groups, police these new baptism rituals that they were doing. And so Jesus, recognizing that they have the attention of the Pharisees, they decide that it is time to move. The Pharisees are not fans or friends of Jesus. We often see in his ministry that Jesus makes efforts to distance himself from them. Because if he is too close to them for too long getting too much of their attention, they will do what they do ultimately do, which is to conspire to put Jesus to death. Jesus limits what is known about himself to them and where and when he is so that he does not face his suffering and death until the properly appointed time. This is something that many theologians and scholars often refer to as the messianic secret how Jesus limits the full revelation of himself for a time and in certain places and to certain people. Now what is fascinating is that at the beginning of this passage, we see Jesus and his disciples moving, traveling to withhold knowledge of his person and work from the Pharisees, but by the end, we will see a full disclosure of who he is to someone quite different. So Jesus and his disciples, after being in Judea for a time, they decide to return to the rural and relatively safe northern territory of Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up, where most of his disciples were from, and this was where they were before this last trip to Jerusalem. But Galilee is not directly north of Jerusalem or Judea. Between the two is this region of Samaria. Now, what is the region of Samaria? Well, Samaria was a city that had served as the capital of Israel, the northern portion of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament. This is where the old grudge comes in. There was frequently resentment and conflict between Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah as they existed as divided nations. This was only deepened as Israel became essentially an apostate nation. Rather than go to Jerusalem and Judah to the temple to worship God as they were commanded to do, the kings of Israel built false places of worship in the northern kingdom. And this corruption of worship gave way to other corruptions. Israel was characterized by its idolatry and all the immoral and grotesque practices that come with idolatry. But eventually Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, and much of the population was displaced from the land. Now when the Assyrians conquered a land, part of how they gained and maintained control 
was to move people away from their own lands where they had resources and power they could use to rebel and move them into other lands where they could be more easily controlled. And this happened roughly 150 years before Judah would be captured and go into exile under the Babylonians. And unlike Judah, who eventually returned from their exile, Israel never did. So what happened was that some of the people of Israel at the time of the Assyrian conquest, they were left behind in the land. They intermarried with the other nations around, and this new people that emerged from this came to be known as the Samaritans. So, essentially, in the eyes of the Jews, by the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were treasonous half-breeds, and the feelings of hatred were largely mutual. Samaritans thought that they were actually the true people of God with their new schemes of worship and religion. This conflict was so intense that typically when Jews had to travel in the area, they would deliberately go out of their way to avoid traveling through Samaria. Now, this was in a day when travel was done on foot. It was dangerous and difficult. So just imagine if you needed to go to Kansas but you disliked Nebraska so much that you would drive all the way around Nebraska so as to not enter it to get to Kansas. You'd go that far out of your way out of mere resentment. It would be something akin to that. But Jesus makes the rather unconventional move as a Jewish man of going through the region of Samaria. Now, specifically in verse 5, he arrives at the city of Sychar. Near a plot of ground, we read that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So there is some of the deep Jewish history here. Jacob had dug a well there, which was still in operation at the time of Jesus' visit. In the ancient world, and particularly in the often hot and dry climate of the area around Israel, Wells were very important. In fact, there are times in the Old Testament where control over wells, control over water sources provoked warfare and conflict. So if you have a good well, that's important. And Jesus, knowing the location of this well, comes there on his travelers, as many a traveler would do. Now we read that this is the sixth hour of the day. It would be around noon. This would be in the afternoon. So this would be the time of the heat of the day. But Jesus, knowing and purposing all things, is not just here for water. We read in verse 7 that a woman comes to the well. Now it is a bit strange that a woman would come to the well at the sixth hour. This is the middle of the day. It's hot. If you're going to haul water, you would either want to do it early in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. Of course, based on some things that we will learn about this woman here in a moment, it seems that she is probably coming to this well at a time when no one else is there. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be noticed. And her chance to go to the well unnoticed is spoiled by this Judean traveler who has the nerve to ask her for water. Now, we also find that by this point, Jesus' disciples are not with him. They'd gone into town to buy food. So there are multiple levels 
by which it would be a social faux pas for Jesus to speak to this woman at all, much less to ask her for a drink. For one, he is a man. She is a woman of ill repute. And then for two, he is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. And these two groups of people have nothing to do with each other. And so in light of these social realities, Jesus, or the woman, is quite surprised when Jesus speaks to her. And she asks him why he would do this. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Then we then get John's editorial comment, which summarizes what I have explained. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But we find that Jesus' purpose is something greater than water or whatever the state of Judean and Samaritan relations are. This woman is concerned about the social implications of this encounter, but Jesus has more important issues to deal with than he is about to. This brings us to our second point. After the division between Jews and Samaritans, we see a discussion between Jesus and the woman in verses 10 through 15. Jesus replies to the woman's question regarding Jesus' socially unacceptable action of speaking to her in verse 10. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, similarly to the conversation previously with Nicodemus in chapter 3, where we knew what Jesus meant when he talked about being born again, we have a pretty good idea what Jesus means when he talks about living water. But remember, this woman would be hearing this all for the first time, and it would be very confusing. I mean, consider the context. This woman is coming in the heat of the day because of her bad reputation to do a physical and demanding and annoying tasks of hauling water. This is evidenced in how the woman responds in verse 11. Her task is physical and temporal water, and that's what's on her mind, and that's how she answers. But as with Nicodemus, Jesus is not interested in having the conversation that the woman wants to have. That's not what he's here to do. He is going to use her concern about water to teach her of a much more important spiritual reality. So we see this woman's misunderstanding in verse 12. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? He doesn't even have a bucket or anything to run it down the well with. So she thinks he's talking about some water source that is better than what she's getting out of that well. But next, she asks a revelatory question, a very revealing question. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now she asks this question expecting a negative answer. But little known to her, the actual answer is a resounding yes. Jesus is the reality of which Jacob could at best be but a type and a shadow. All Jacob was and did, and all his descendants were and did, served the purpose of preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. The woman's statement 
also reveals some of the nature of the Judean-Samaritan conflict as the Judeans think that the Samaritans are the treasonous half-breeds, but the Samaritans believe that they are the true remnant of Israel. They still see Jacob as their father. In fact, the Samaritans believe that they have the true worship of God and that Judea is wrong. This will fuel some of the later conversation. But it is in verse 13 in answering this question about Jacob that Jesus begins to reveal his concern with spiritual realities. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he is talking about meeting a need and providing a life that temporal water, the regular water we would get out of the ground, cannot provide. Now think, water is the most essential thing to life. In survival situations, for instance, most people can go without food for weeks. But one must have water within a few days, or else he or she will be at a risk of dying. Water is a constant need. We don't think about it too much because we can walk into our kitchen or bathroom and turn a tap and we've got all the good, clean water we can ask for. But in the ancient world and even in much of the undeveloped world now, water is a literal matter of life and death every day. In many places, water is dirty, full of diseases, full of chemicals, full of contaminants that make it unable to nourish and sustain. In other places, like various deserts, there simply is not enough water. Right now, even in the American Southwest, there's a lot of concern about the Colorado River Basin. The area's been in a several drought for many years to where even cities and towns in that area may have to cut back their water use. But Jesus is talking about a greater water for a greater need. Spiritual water to fend off spiritual death. It is a water that satisfies the soul eternally and causes one to live forever, unlike any water that this earth might provide that might get you a day or two. Jesus makes it clear what the end of this is. Those to whom Jesus gives this living water will not only have it for now, but will be a fountain, a constant moving, running source of water that has its end in everlasting life. There is a permanent washing, a permanent nourishment, and a sustenance that the living water of Christ provides. But the woman does not yet understand. We see this in her response in verse 15. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So she still thinks that Jesus is talking about some permanent and unstoppable source of earthly water that's going to remove the necessity of these daily trips to the well. She's so consumed with the needs of this life that she does not yet grasp the eternal and spiritual implications of what Jesus is saying. But Jesus has a way to get through to her. And this brings us to our final point. After the division and the discussion, we come to disclosures in verses 16 through 26. 
fact, we see here Jesus making two disclosures. First, he discloses what he knows of the woman. And then second, we see Jesus making a disclosure concerning himself. In verse 16, Jesus tells the woman to go get her husband. He goes right for the nerve. It would be a normal and reasonable enough request, but what Jesus knows is that this is going to confront the woman's sin and her spiritual state directly. Now the woman responds with a half-truth. I have no husband. She rightly says that she does not currently have a husband, but she is leaving out some important details. But Jesus knows, and he will reveal that he knows, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So at this point, there can be no pretense of dignity left. While we don't hear exactly why this woman has had five husbands, the fact that she is currently called out for being in an adulterous relationship means that we probably have a pretty good guess is the same reason why this woman has to come draw water in the middle of the day. She doesn't have a good reputation around town. She is and has been a serial adulteress. Now, her response in this passage has always struck me. She, This woman probably would have been completely blindsided by this stranger from Judea suddenly recounting, all the sordid details of her life story. And so she answers, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, yeah. (laughs) Obviously, this man has the ability to see and know events of which he had no part. But she also immediately tries to change the subject. Instead of dwelling for any length of time, on her moral failing, she decides that since she is in the presence of a prophet, she will have a theological discussion instead. This is something that tends to happen when we as Christians even confront people in their sin. They will try to get out on some sort of theological or doctrinal technicality. I saw, for instance, this week a post from a prominent feminist and egalitarian scholar, and she was defending her position of why women could be ministers. And one of her defenses was that, in her words, lots of believing and faithful scholars have agreed with me. Well, faithful and believing are words that have meaning. And the teaching of Scripture on this topic is quite clear. And there's no being faithful or believing when directly defying God's God's word. And yet, so many in our day are looking for theological and academic loopholes to confirm people in their sin rather than repent and call others to repentance. But that's what this woman tries to do. So here's the theological claim that she makes. Our fathers, so the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. This is, as I mentioned before, one of the foundational disagreements between the Judeans and the Samaritans. Now, in this case, the Jews were right. 
God had set his name at the temple in Jerusalem. It was out of rebellion that the Samaritans ended up worshiping God in the high places of the northern territory. And Jesus' response will reflect this, but it will also say much more. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. This would have been an earth-shattering truth for both the Jews and the Samaritans for here, well, to hear. Because so much of their belief, so much of their identity was wrapped up in this question of where? Where do we worship God? As we've already seen so often in John, the people of Jesus' time are so focused on the external things, the ceremonies, the washing rituals, the places, be it the temple or the places of Samaria, they are missing what is most important, what is most vital. Jesus continues, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So weighing in on the woman's question, he says that the Jews were the ones who had it right. God was, up to that point, to be worshipped in Jerusalem. And if Jesus had stopped right there, he might have made this woman a convert to Judaism. But that's not what he's out to do. He continues on in verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what we have here is essentially the charter for Christian worship. Jesus has come to abolish the sacrifices and the ceremonies and even the places of the Old Covenant. He has come to do away with a system of worship confined to a single building on a hill in Jerusalem. A system of worship focused on a place will soon be superseded by a system of worship based on a person. Those who are to worship God in the new covenant must worship Christ in spirit and in truth. They must approach him in faith, in belief in his word, and by the effectual calling and application of redemption by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says that God is spirit, this is a very important truth. It means that God is not physical. God is not confined to a body or a building in Jerusalem or Samaria or even the church buildings of our time. It is a blessing that we have a building, but if for whatever reason we did not have this building, we could worship God according to his appointed means anywhere. True worship is not place-oriented, it's not ethnic, it's not of any physical or spatial thing. It is believers in Christ worshiping Him in the ways He requires in true faith and belief and repentance. So this is a massive disclosure by Jesus. It is revolutionary. It will change everything in Judea and Samaria and beyond. But that is not all that is disclosed here. 
For the woman responds, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. Now remember from before, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah, anointed one. These terms are interchangeable. Continuing, the woman says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, where he hasn't dealing with others, like the Pharisees, been concealing himself, he now reveals himself. The time has come for the full revelation of Christ to the Samaritans. And so he says to this woman of ill repute, I who speak to you am he. Jesus makes it clear, makes it certain, makes it without a doubt that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all this talk of worship and signs and ceremonies and even the water at Jacob's well. And going forward, this woman will become a witness. But we will save that for next time. So what do we do with this text? Well, it puts questions before us. Do we have the living water? Are we chasing worldly things, worldly needs, worldly life and pleasure so much that we have lost sight of our spiritual need, which is to be cleansed of our sins and be reconciled to God and have Christ's righteousness imputed to us? This Jesus who appeared that day at the well in Samaria was the same Jesus who would bear the wrath of God on the cross, suffer the penalty for the sins of his people. To all who would repent of their sins and believe in him, life and salvation are freely offered as a never-ending fountain that flows forth to eternal life. Perhaps you're here tonight, you've had a wrong perspective on worship. Perhaps you have thought by your mere presence in the right place at the right time, by your saying of right words or fulfilling right rituals that you have worshipped God. The commission that Christ gives to his people is to worship him in spirit and in truth. Is that how you worship him? Do you worship God in truth, believing what he has said is true and worship him according to what he has prescribed in his word? Do you worship him in spirit with a true and living faith that trusts in Christ and receives all his blessings by the spirit? God is seeking such people to worship him. And so may we be that people, the people that worships our God in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word of the gospel that we have heard. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who just as he appeared to this woman at this well in Samaria centuries ago, to offer her the water which leads to everlasting life, that he has come also to us by the word and spirit and offered eternal life even to the unworthy sinners that we are. I pray that we would all believe this gospel truth, rest in it, trust in it, and proclaim it to the lost and dying world around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn tonight is number 455, Searcher of Hearts.